Beat you up, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome to uh, to another episode of the Cinebeards. The Cinebeards. The Cinebeards. Oh, I thought it was just Cinebeards. <laughs> cool. I'm your host, Jason Musicanth. Hi, Jason. That also is Dion von Heerden. Hi. And that's Marcus. Hi, hey, I'm Marcus. <laughs> That's a great impression Video of me. Games. <laughs> <laughs> that, in yep. case you're wondering, that was actually me. It was in Marcus. He's really good with voices. He's really I'm here good. looking at them, and I still did not know that that wasn't Marcus. <laughs> like Dion's a really good impersonator. Yeah. Uh, so this week we're going to talk about the influence that Japanese cinema has had on Western cinema. Japanese cinema influencing Western cinema. Yeah. But how? <laughs> there are several yeah. ways, Dion. Oh, do and, tell. And they all come back to Akira Kurosawa. Uh, you, you can't rule out Ozu. Yeah, no, I know I can't, but the public opinion answer is it's all Akira Kurosawa. Well, yeah, he's probably one of the greatest filmmakers of all time if not the greatest filmmaker yeah. of all time like just in general i'm getting a look from dion like he doesn't he's not familiar with some of kurosawa's works oh tell me more so have you he, seen it oh you probably haven't seen any of these but they are all very influential um hidden fortress actually i'm just gonna throw out i've played team fortress i'm, I'm just gonna throw Didn't out a movie that he made and Jason, because he knows as much as I do on this, he'll throw out I one of the Western movies that it was based on. All right. Well, no, that were based on it. Yeah, that were based Ayo. on it. Ayo! Too late. So. <laughs> Too late. Oh, no! It's Western <laughs> cinema that's done the influencing. <laughs> so, um, I'll start off with, um, I don't know, Seven Samurai. Let's start well, there. The obvious answer there is Magnificent Seven. Now, you've seen that. Okay. Uh, Yojimbro. Your, mm-hmm. your Jimbo, I believe, is your the Jimbo. critic. I've not only seen that, I wrote the soundtrack for a game pastiche of it. Mm. No. The um, answer you're looking for is A Fistful of Dollars. That's exactly the one I was actually looking for. That's the name I was I looking for in my head. <laughs> I know. So, yeah, Fistful of Dollars for that one. And then, and then um, obviously, Hidden Fortress, which we all know more as. Oh, boy, what could this be? Dion? Team Fortress. No, Star Wars. Hmm? No, Star Wars is Lion King. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're getting confused now. Lion King was ripped off of from Kimba Kim- the White Lion, Kim- which was a Korean animated film. It's the same thing. Hmm. <laughs> okay. You guys need to keep up. Yeah. It's a hip-hop world. Alright, what else has he done? Because I've actually seen two of those three, and, so I'm, I'm happy with myself here. And, Rashomon. And Rashomon, which... Which the Western version is? The Western versions. Mm. Like, the way... Rashomon is different in that it created a technique that mm. is prevalent in cinema to this day still. Filming with a camera. No, whereby you tell a st- one story from different viewpoints. Mm. That's Rashomon. That was the first film to do that. Jeez. So any yeah, and, movie and with the bias of each of those viewpoints, like no. very much included. Yeah, like um, a good example, even though it's not Western hero, mm-hmm. where every with the color coding and everyone's viewpoint, that's based on the storytelling or, method of Rashomon. Or more recently and more personal to Dion, the f- little flashback bits in the Last Jedi. Mm. Yes, 
Yes. I, yeah, okay. I, I thought you were going to say Geostorm. <laughs> <laughs> Can't keep going back to that Geostorm well, Dion. <laughs> uh, but we will. <laughs> Until it's dry. <laughs> so it, it could be argued that Western genre filmmaking, as mm-hmm. it exists, wouldn't exist without Kurosawa's influence. He influenced the Western. He's influenced action films, uh, fantasy films, adventure films, even horror. Mm. Like some of his earlier works and some of his late career works were very horror-centric. Mm. Yeah. Gotta see that. Yeah. Like he's, he, he made we- something ridiculous like 30 films during his 59-year career. Yeah, but it was only really um, after the um, American occupation of Japan ended that he was really able to make the movies that actually got him where he needed to be. Yes. The so-called golden age of Japanese cinema. Yeah. Because obviously when the Americans were there, he was scared they might copy some of his ideas. So he waited (laughs) until they were gone. (laughs) All right, it's safe now. Yeah, but like when the Americans were there, obviously heavy censorship, nothing, nothing with samurai or, or or anything glorifying Japanese culture in it. Yeah, and before that, it was war times. So the Japanese were like, ah, uh-uh, nothing, any kind of Western centric. We need to paint them out to be the bad guys. Give us some good propaganda. So he he wasn't really able to do the kind of filmmaking around it because he was actually. Um, like in almost a cyclical manner, he was influenced by a lot of the um, American westerns and stuff like that. So his his films were always um, considered by the Japanese to be far more western than anything that that had come before them. Yeah, I think one movie in particular, I can't remember the name of it, but um, he tried to release it during the war, and uh, the Japanese government told him it was far too western. And then when the when Japan was still American occupied, he tried to release it, and they were like, "No, no, that's far too Japanese." So he was in this weird liminal space. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. So huh. he, he released that like a few years after, after the occupation. But yeah, it was. I believe was that was like Stray 19, Dog. Nine, yeah, Stray Dog. That's the one. That's the one. Um, yeah. So from about the fifties onward was like just the golden age yeah. of Japanese cinema. And it's just pretty much everything that was coming out of there was outstanding. Including, which... Uh, oh, shit, we forgot to put at the head of this episode, actually. What? <laughs> that, that, that we're discussing this because of... Cause oh, we're discussing because there's shit movies coming out that may be influenced by some anime. There, we said it. Pacific Rim Uprising is coming out this week, hence That's this episode. That's why we're talking about these things. Yeah. Also, okay. speaking of Pacific Rim and the 50s, the kaiju movie. Yeah, 1954 saw the release of uh, Godzilla. Godzilla and actually Seven Samurai, both released by uh, Toho Studios. In, yes. in the same year. Same yep. year. That's quite a year. And both of them were actually nominated for Best Picture. Holy mm. shit. Godzilla was nominated for Best Picture. How That's cool is that? glorious. Uh, Seven Samurai obviously ended up winning. But, yeah. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. And that obviously had a huge influence on the filmmaking of the country Sierra Leone. <laughs> no, I believe that's the country. That's the country that made all those um, Clint Eastwood westerns, right? You're thinking of Sergio Leone. No, no, it's Sierra Leone. No, no, no. No, no I've seen that on a map. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Laos. <laughs> 
I don't, I'm not sure how you say this. Seen gall? Who's a goodie for there? Okay. So, uh, yeah, it, it had an influence on that, but, but more than that, the, like, more than the actual works influencing Western cinema, a lot of the, the style of Japanese filmmaking, yes. like, um, Ozu has this, um, the shot that he always uses that, that's referred to as the tatami shot. What? Sorry, it's going to be the three Marines back to back coming out of water. <laughs> You, you're close. It's actually, it's when there's a long pan that spins around <laughs> your protagonist as they slowly stand into frame. Sorry, carry on. Uh, no, he's, he's got the tatami shot, which was like a low, a low shot that he used. And in Western filmmaking at the time, that was just like often used to make characters look more imposing, more important. Are you just talking angle. about... The hero shot, as we know it today. Well, low angle shot, heroes like standing, standing, you're like close to ground level, so yeah. you're looking up. That's it, a high angle shot. Yeah, but I don't know these technical terms. But uh, yeah, so he he used that, that shot there mostly because, you know, it's a very Japanese perspective because they're always... Deifying their heroes. No, they're always used to... Um, their seated position being on the tatami mat, hence mm. the name, the tatami shot. So it, it, from from that side, it made it, it more personal. Mm. Like his his most famous work, Tokyo Story, hailed as one of the best movies of all time, very heavily uses that tatami shot and makes it feel all very personal because throughout that movie, characters that you're seeing on screen are sitting on the tatami mats themselves. So you're feeling like you're a part of this thing. And then... That kind of thing that is the hero shot, as we know, became very much used in Western cinema as well. Same thing with um, Kurosawa's motion that he uses in the shots. Yes. Where he, like, blends several different kinds of motion together in yeah. one shot. Yeah. And the long pan over an action scene, that was Kurosawa. He yeah. So it is... He did that. One of the ones we, which was most famous for... I believe it was in Seven Samurai where they had the camera. Bandits coming over the hills. Or? The bandits coming over the hills where he wanted this panning shot, but it was too hard to accomplish because of the terrain. So what they did was they put the camera at its maximum zoom level and then just like tilted it like with by hand to sort of get that panning shot. And then it came out so smooth and so incredible that no one believed or could figure out how they actually did it at the time hmm. weirdly enough they actually uh, recreated it in phantom menace or attack the clones which one was it uh, probably one of the prequels where the, where the droid army is also coming over the hill hmm. it's like a, a shot for shot remake oh. of the bandits coming no that over was the hill. phantom menace phantom menace yeah that yeah. was with the, their assault on the boo yes yeah yeah phantom menace with the hills but jason is that the only influence Japanese cinema has had on something like Star Wars? No, we told you earlier, Dion. <laughs> Star Wars is a straight man here, dammit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Star, Star Wars is mostly Hidden Fortress, which, I mean, Lucas took the whole from the lower classes perspective that that movie used where you followed the two peasants through the, well, Hidden Fortress, I guess. 
he, the he basically, two peasants being the droids in he, Star Wars. Yeah, there we go. He basically just turned them into R2-D2 and C-3PO. But, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Hidden Fortress that's pretty much just copied one for one into A New Hope. But remember, that's not copying. That's a homage. Well, wink, wink. Well, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is, I guess, because he's not the only filmmaker to have done that with Kurosawa's work. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can see you you, put, you you can put him in the same boat in that regard as say Steven Spielberg. Mm. So that's yeah. yeah I, I, I think I think when you when you have that many things directly lifted from other sources, I start feeling a little no, uneasy. Uh, no, to you, say you, homage. you don't you don't lift it from one source. You lift it from many. Yeah, yeah. That, that's when homage starts feeling a yeah. little. Yeah, I mean, Kurosawa is just the most yeah. prolific. Japanese source of inspiration on Western cinema. Mm. I mean, if you go into, I'm just going to shift gears here now. Yeah. If you look at dystopian sci-fi, you know, through the Western lens, none of that would exist had Akira not been released. Akira was a seminal and manga and anime that influenced tons of sci-fi filmmakers that are active to this day. The Matrix wouldn't be what it was without Akira. And Ghost in the Shell. And Ghost in the Shell. But Ghost in the Shell came later, like yeah. mid-90s. 95, yeah. 95. So it, that, that in turn influenced... When did Akira come out? 1988. Yeah. That was pre-Disney Renaissance. Yeah, but, we'll but the Wachowskis are very, very upfront about very those upfront. being their influences. Yeah. And it's not just them. I mean, without... But, but here's where it gets almost cyclic, because... In reading um, like articles and interviews, Akira wouldn't have been what it was had it not been for Blade Runner. Yeah, I was yeah. actually just about it, just about to look it yeah. up. So yeah, it, it 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 all seems to be this cyclical kind of thing, like stealing Kurosawa, from each other. Yeah, yeah no, Kurosawa well, influenced by westerns, then making films that then influence westerns. Yeah, yeah that influence westerns and westerners. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> And the yeah, same so thing happened with Akira. And the same thing happened with anime, early anime like Astro Boy, heavily influenced by the old Walt Disney and Nash Fleischer style of animation with the exaggerated eyes and all of that. Then anime moved forward at such a fast pace and started influencing Western animation again. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, actually, just thinking about it, um, Chronicle is basically just Akira. Yeah, Chronicle is Akira. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that Max Landis. <laughs> I mean, like, like, um, as like all, like, basically all modern sci-fi has to pay its dues to modern. I want to say cyberpunk. Mm, yeah, yeah, cyberpunk specifically as a subgenre would not have the visual language it does without Blade Runner and Akira. Mm. Because uh, Blade Runner set up this sort of vague idea of what it would look like. You know, the neons and the blending mm -hmm. of cultures and everything. Akira went and refined that look, I find. Mm. Like, mm. Akira is a very refined version of that dystopian cyberpunk future. And with all the lights... Oh, I love that movie. It's so beautiful. But anyway, that, that in turn... Like, Altered Carbon wouldn't look the way it does were it not for Akira. Mm. No, um, Blade Runner 2049 
Like there's quite a bit of Akira in that visual language I noticed upon second viewing. Yeah, uh, yeah, very much mixed in with the the original Blade Runner aesthetic mm. is the whole Akira look to it. Yeah, especially with the holograms and everything, it's a little little less Blade Runner, a little more Akira I found. So you know, Japanese cinema definitely had an influence on some of the visual languages we associate with Western sci-fi. Um, yeah. And I mean, do I even need to mention Mecca? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, you probably should with this thing coming, this episode coming out because of Pacific Rim. Yeah, I mean, with Pacific Rim, you've basically got Gundam, which is one of the most famous Mecha anime that everybody, like when you show someone a giant robot, they're most likely to answer Gundam. That's just, yeah. it's, it's the shorthand now. Even though Macross exists, Battletech was built on Macross, was built on, that's a whole different licensing deal issue. But that look of robots is also, has also heavily influenced how Westerners interpret robots, mm. even in real life. Look at the stuff that um, Boston Dynamics are making. And some of the other robotics firms you know they're all based on the looks of robots in shows like macross like evangelion like these japanese shows and films that created the visual language of what a robot should look like mm. and that just bleeds into cinema it's beautiful well i spoke for a long time there you did you did indeed and we just let you go at it you should not ah, let me do that. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> you should not let me do that because next I'll just talk about how Hayao Miyazaki is basically the reason that Disney had a renaissance. Go on. Good, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Hey, to be fair, I went on for a little bit about the. Uh, yeah. I feel like Dion, you tell us why uh, Miyazaki is basically responsible for Disney's renaissance. I don't know why. Okay, well then, it, I guess it has to be you, Marcus. Yeah, I guess it has to be me, because I just actually thought of this. Well, actually... Uh, while you're busy looking at that, Jedi actually... While you're busy researching the thing well, you're going to yeah. talk about. No, no, no. Uh, just give <laughs> me some The name facts, right? Jedi actually comes from the kind of period piece in Japanese cinema that, um, that influenced George Lucas, mm? called the Jedi Geki. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So he's like, oh, that's a cool sounding word. <laughs> I'm just going to just, I'll, I'll hold on to it for you. Like Stan Lee in the thing. Like, I'm, I'm going to put this over here. Keep it safe. Visionary director and uh, original, <laughs> completely original out of his own brain creator, George Lucas. Uh, I have a lot. It's, it's a pity because these new Star Wars movies are so derivative. <laughs> I have... Uh, that is one of my ultimate pet peeves, but I, I try not to get into that argument. You know, people sort of I love Lucas is the little flame of yeah, yours. It's just like Lucas is the sort of singular visionary. You know, it's just yeah, there we go. Okay, so no, but he has some great ideas that he took from other people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he really does. Well, good artists borrow great artists. John Cleese in his in his autobiography. The so anyway. Um, like he actually says, like if he can give one piece of advice to like aspiring comic writers, it's this: steal. 
Well, you should yes. have said you came up with that. Oh no! <laughs> so, there's no way to confirm or deny this, but Studio Ghibli may have had an influence on the Disney Renaissance. This is a Marcus and, by extension, Cinebeard's theory. Yeah. So when you look at <laughs> when you look at Studio Ghibli's films. And at first, I should probably just specify the Disney Renaissance is the period between 1989 and 1999 when Disney released 2D animated features that were, on the whole, critically acclaimed. There were a couple of them that were a bit iffy, but on the whole, I mean, people remember Little Mermaid, Lion King, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast. No, all of those came out of the Disney Renaissance. My theory is that they took idea not exactly ideas, but took, I want to say, philosophies from Studio Ghibli. See, Studio Ghibli with two of the main um, directors, and I'm probably going to butcher their names, I apologize, Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahara. Takahata. Why did I make it a D? I don't know, but you didn't butcher them too badly, actually. Fantastic, thank Good you. Job. They... In the period pre-Disney Renaissance, right? So we're looking between when Studio Ghibli was officially founded in 1985 up to 1989. Mm. The movies they released then were Laputa, Castle in the Sky, which was a high fantasy piece and had gorgeous animation. Grave of the Fireflies. Which was depressing. Which is one of the most saddest and one of the most moving pieces of animated filmmaking yep. you will ever see. And they followed that up with My Neighbor Totoro, which I don't even need to tell you about My Neighbor Totoro. It's My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> Dion has no idea. Not this scares me. <laughs> and of course, in 1989, um, Kiki's Delivery Service which is one of the few Even that I've seen that. Oh, what one you seen? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I haven't seen that. One. That's that's the that's the more comedy focused. I think I think so. Dion, you you're the one that's seen it. <laughs> I believe that was. I don't the know more... if it's more comedy focused than the rest. I have nothing to compare it to. It, it probably is. Like Kiki's delivery service was the jovial, the happy sort of more. Definitely, def definitively aimed at kids, sort of film. More so than Tonari no Totoro. I would say yes, more so than My Neighbor Totoro. Okay. And I know you use the Japanese name. It's Tonari no Totoro. Yeah, it's it's easier for me to say than My Neighbor Totoro. Really? Yeah. Weeb. <laughs> Weeb. <laughs> anyway, so if you look at those films, those are what? That's one, two, three, four, just four films that vary so so vastly in tone and subject matter all under coming out of one studio all under the direction of two people and i believe disney looked at that and realized hang on we can do something with all these things that we have in our animation all these classic stories we don't have to tell them the way walt disney told them back in the day we don't have to do them in sort of the way animation was done in the 70s. 
we can do it differently. We can make the stories more intricate. We can use different techniques. And I believe that's why the Disney Renaissance had such an impact on people because they saw what Studio Ghibli was doing and said, you know what, maybe that style will work for us. Not one-to-one, obviously, because they don't look alike at all. But it's but more, for me, it's more the, the, the influence and the philosophy of Studio Ghibli sort of infiltrating the ranks of Disney animation. Well, so, since like the dawn of time, Disney's been very good at seeing other people's success mm-hmm. and essentially improving upon the, the system that, that gave them that success. Mm-hmm. Like Disney's very, very good at adapting successful strategies for themselves. Mm. I think also a huge part of it, obviously not sort of derail too much, was like, just the fact that they got a ton of Broadway people in, and they mm. like they're just incredibly good musicals. Like yeah, the the Disney Renaissance was primarily like Broadway style musicals, and they got really what is his name Alan Mench. I'm gonna butcher Menken Mench. Anyway, like you Alan know, Menken, like, yeah, yeah, like Alan Menken, and like they got Broadway lyricists, Broadway songwriters, that sort of structure to the stories as well. Um, and I think that was also a huge thing because it's also crowd pleasing. So I think yeah. they sort of they took that kind of philosophy and they found a way to sort of make it mass mass audience. Because like yeah, I mean they, that was they, they took it and they improved upon it. Yeah, by and taking they, good things from other stuff too. Yeah, because I mean that that sort of I mean that was obviously like a huge boon time for for yeah. Broadway as well, the musicals. And I think they knew that was also like home, you know, like vinyl releases for soundtracks yeah. and shit yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. All sorts of time, like live shows and everything. So I think they they sort of they took that and then they're like, "Cool, how can we make a billion dollars with it? Mm. Lots of songs, really good songs, really good songs, really fucking good, really songs. catchy songs." Yeah, not sound like an old fart, but like when people sort of talk about the Disney Renaissance, that's like the one thing I really miss is the like like a lot of the new Disney stuff. Like when they have songs, they're they're often good. But, like, go, just to treat yourself, go look on YouTube and look for Little Mermaid um, score. Like, there's a thing where they take the underscoring of the the film and they remove all other sounds. And you're just listening to the underscore. And almost the entire film is intricately underscored. And you barely notice it. And then how that builds subconsciously into all the incredible musical numbers. And like, if they've lost anything, that's definitely a big part of it. That'll I'll blow check that you. up. That yeah. sounds super mm. interesting. That'll blow your mind. As a musician, it really depresses me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like there is there is more like intricacy and inventiveness in most of like that underscore that you almost never hear than like, you know, most sort of like full blown musical numbers these days. It's crazy. Mm. Something else I feel we should mention here. Yes. What about Japanese horror? Uh, it's it's usually Korean horror that takes the front seat in terms of influencing Western horror, but... It's the Japanese horror forms that get con- incessantly remade, though. To an extent, yeah, it's fairly split between the two. What were you... The Grudge and The Ring? Were those Japanese or Korean originally? Japanese. Those two. Those, those two franchises. Two, yeah, those two franchises. Because, yeah, Hollywood loves those two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
And but then, also, yeah, uh, the one, visual... One missed call was Korean, yes. I believe. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly even It's even a pretty spread. even split, but, you know... What are some other Korean ones I've known? Oh, I'd have to pull it up Oof. for you. But, yeah. uh, there's tons of stuff about forests. They really love mo- horror movies set in forests. Oh in God, Korea. no, Jesus Christ! I'm already terrified. <laughs> Fuck you. No, but the Koreans really actually do love haunted woods movies. Oh, geez, the, those yeah. fucking get to me. <laughs> Holy shit! Oh. You don't do the haunted forests. I, I do. I love it, but then I don't sleep for a week. It's just, <laughs> yes, that shit terror. I can't stop. So next spooky weekend. <laughs> oh yes. Just everything in what the forest. What did you say? The ritual. Yes, is it good? That's, that's the one on Netflix. Oh, yes, yes, that is the one that Thomas actually recommended yeah. to us. Oh, God, Jesus. It's good. Okay. I watched it. Is that, is, is, is that like his next form where he becomes more powerful? <laughs> God, Jesus. <laughs> I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, there's a, obviously a huge uh, Japanese influence mm. on, on horror movies. And just look at the, the visual language... Or actually, yeah, this is a good one. How the visual language of ghosts has changed mm. post two thousand. Mm. I mean, pre two thousand, mostly like Western horror movie ghosts astral. were were astral, mm. you know, and you know that that old non, trick of non corporeal, non corporeal, or like just a sheet, you know, that ooh, I'm a spooky ghost. Jeez, Marcus, you're <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> but post two th- <laughs> worst superhero ever, <laughs> Warner guy. <laughs> but post two thousand, after the Ring mm. uh, remake, which obviously is based on a Japanese film, that sort of started the started the trend of having ghosts specifically tend to be feminine and tend to be corporeal, like like physical form, like with shape. Oh yeah. Think yeah. about it. Like yeah, that's think true. Of, think and I mean the grudge as well. Like yeah. the, like the, with the the spooky kid. Yeah. That's basically that's, that's, that's really basic, popularized ki- kids that, as That's villain. basically yeah. just the sixth sense. Yeah. Take I mean if you look at Willis. if you look at a lot of the the Bloomhouse <laughs> horror forms, how they sort of interpret ghosts in their ghost centric mm. forms. It's very much based on that Japanese idea mm. of what a ghost would look like which is cool it's a hell of a lot spookier than a non-corporeal ghost yeah yeah well, and that, spooky that, children are it's fucking terrifying because that's double the spooky that's yeah. double the spooky because kids are already really spooky no. i mean well think like, about how it. do what? they exist how how is a human that small how does it work i mean think of think about and what it. happens to them the child's around for a couple of years and you come back it's gone yeah. <laughs> and there's like an <laughs> adult in its place did he do something with it <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we we cannot um, discuss Japanese influence on uh, Western. Oh shit! Because we've been doing that like for that. half an hour already. <laughs> no, I mean without bringing up shit like the Power Rangers. Oh yes, like that is one hundred percent like just ripped from from Japanese culture. Weirdly enough, the biggest influence for um, the American version of Power Rangers was the Japanese version of Spider Man. Yes. In which Spider-Man had a giant mech named Leopardon. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it followed the... Not Leopardon, Leopardon. Leopardon, yeah. It followed the, the same basic story um, as um, regular Spider-Man. Yes. You know, where uh, Dr. Spider, the professor from Planet Spider, comes down and gives Tanaka his spider powers in the spider cave. 
and then he gets his cool car and leopard on. Mm. So it's, it's pretty much one for one, the same as the Western Western Spider-Man. My favorite thing about that is there was a, a Japanese interview um, with Stan Lee, mm. and the, um, the interviewer's busy speaking to him um, about the whole thing. He's like, yeah, I really like it, except... I don't understand. What's that car he gets into that goes and flies into the into the robot? And the ladies that is like, that's Super Eight. That's that's Spider Man's car. Kind of like with the term like you invented this. How do you not even know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, come on. What I how, love. How old is this interview though? Uh, it's, it's, it's from, from the seventies. Yeah. From oh the 70s. wow. Okay. I thought maybe it's just senility. Yeah. So very much influenced. You mentioned Power Rangers. Uh. Okay, that's enough. That shouldn't okay. get copyright claimed. What's that? Toku Sentai. It's one of the theme songs from one of from the classic. It's amazing. Sort of thing. Also, another thing about uh, Japanese Spider-Man, which is my favorite thing. Yeah. I think you mentioned this to me like a couple of years back. How Marvel Comics made him canon. Yeah, in the in the um, the Spider Verse crossover. Where all the different Spider-Mans, all the different universes came together, including like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man and like the current um, like cinematic Spider-Man yeah. that was at the time, like literally the ones from the games, everything all came together to like fight this big evil. And the final blow that took down the the big evil came from Leopardon. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah. Like Japanese Spider-Man <laughs> flew in there in Leopardon <laughs> and just took out the big bad. And it's, it's beautiful. It was glorious. Holy shit! It's absolutely beautiful. Was this like like a limited run thing? No, it was a, like it a, was a kind of was a big Marvel event. Like that yeah, was the a, a, a the end of the Spider Verse or something like that. Yeah. Holy shit! That's awesome, <laughs> right? Yeah. Damn. Ah, oh, that was great. That that for me was just it's probably my favorite thing that's ever happened in a Marvel <laughs> comic. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, so let's wrap it up with um, our recommendations. You know what? Go see Pacific Rim. It might not be great, but I'm sure it'll be a fun time. Yo, I don't know, eh? Yeah, so uh, Dion. Um, apparently, by now, circa the 20th of March. Yes. Jumanji is out on Blu-ray. Oh, good. That ties into the last week's one. episode with video game movies. Yeah. That's technically, oh, by Mark's that. definition, a video game movie. Yeah, yeah it is. And it's a, I, I still haven't seen it. I can't believe I missed it on the IMAX. But apparently, everyone just says it's surprisingly good and entertaining. Oh, but now we've been told it's surprisingly good. So if it's good, it's just oh, going to be no. good, but without the surprising <laughs> part. Oh, oh no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You've ruined it, Dion. Uh, I'm really sorry. But yeah, also, so I actually also missed that in, in the cinema. So I'm keen to... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually also very surprised that it's out on Blu-ray already. Yeah, that was quick. That's pretty awesome. It's good for me because I missed it, so mm. I want to see it. Unfortunate. Okay. Marcus, you're... On Netflix, I was a total idiot last week, and I didn't suggest season two of Jessica Jones. Oh, Marcus, <laughs> but we've already watched it twice. And if you've already watched it <laughs> twice... Who's got time for that? Humans. We did. All of us have yeah. watched it twice. Have Jason. you not? What's wrong with you, Jason? Yeah, I watched it twice. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> right, seeing as... I was nearly murdered there. But if you're waiting for me to tell you to watch it, do you have my permission now, I guess? <laughs> the whole internet. 
breathes and, a sigh of relief. And this Friday... <laughs> Thomas is like... <laughs> and this Friday on the 23rd, you will be able to watch the second season of Santa Clarita Diet. You guys look at me like you've never heard of it before. That's exactly how we're looking at you. So, Drew Barrymore is a cannibal. Yeah, oh, but I've heard this. Yeah, yes, but what's the show telling about? me about it? That's that's the show. Oh, is it? Yeah, Drew Barrymore oh, okay, so it's is a documentary. A, no, it's a, it's a it's a situational comedy that has if to only deal there with. There's a shorter way of saying that. Yeah, I wish there was. It's a situational col- colony. <laughs> situational colony. Situomedy. Yeah. <laughs> a situational <laughs> comedy about an estate agent who has at the start of the series, somehow died and come back and now craves human flesh. Wait, is wait, this eye zombie? You said she's a cannibal. That sounds more like a zombie, Marcus. Yeah, this sounds like eye zombie. Well, sh- she's she's technically a zombie, but she has she does not look like a zombie. She still looks perfectly That's normal human. That's profiling. <laughs> just fucking watch it. And then. it still sounds like eye zombie. I'm, I'm just gonna stop. Which, by the way, is really good. Yeah, I know iZombie's pretty it's good. It's a complete rip-off of Santa Clarina Diet, though. <laughs> yeah, it really, really fucking is. Oh, they make 30 Rock references. I'll watch that show all day. Santa Clarita Diet is pretty funny, or at least the first season was, so give the second one a shot. Okay, that's not the first recommendation I've heard for it, so yeah, maybe I'll give it a shot. Cool. It's uh, pretty macabre. Plugs, Dion. <laughs> Marcus. YouTube. I, I, have, I still have that gaming channel. I no, Nobody watches yeah, it. But you, yeah. haven't, you haven't got over that phase yet, have yeah. you? No, I haven't. I'm still trying. It's just a phase. It's just a phase. I'm still trying to be better than Markiplier. When are you going to get a real job, Marcus? Instead of chasing these pipe dreams. You know, we know it's sexy and you're young, but your looks aren't going to last forever. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm going to live forever, Dad! <laughs> Thanks to denial. You have to become yes. a dentist. <laughs> Before reality sinks its teeth into you. Oh! <sighs> you can find Dad us. Dad metaphors. <laughs> uh, Dadaphors. Uh, shut up! You can find us in the four dads. Wait, 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 no. A new, a new situomedy. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbit.